2017 book, Understanding John Dunn Scotus, Mary Beth Ingham introduces Scotus in the following way. John Dunn Scotus was born in Dunn's Scotland in 1266. He lived and taught in Oxford, Paris, and Cologne during the final decades of the 13th century and the first decade of the 14th. He died at the height of his teaching career at the age of 42 and is buried in Cologne, Germany, at the Franciscan Church not far from the cathedral. He was beatified by Pope St. John Paul II in 1993. Scotus's philosophical vision is extremely important for the Franciscan family today. He captures the vision of St. Francis and casts it in a coherent whole, emphasizing love, beauty, divine generosity, and the human journey as pilgrimage. Both a scholar and teacher, Scotus brought to bear the wisdom of the Franciscan spiritual tradition, the insights of Aristotelian philosophy, and the aspirations of the developing science of theology. Don Scotus used all three sources to weave together the tapestry of his thought. The result is an original recasting of the common medieval project, known to historians as Fides Quarens Intellectum, faith-seeking understanding. That's my guest for today's show, Sister Mary Beth Ingham. My name is Matt Cheminsky. This is the Curious Catholic Podcast. This installment begins a short series of three episodes devoted to the life and work of the Franciscan, Blessed John Dun Scotus, who is a woefully underattended to philosopher and theologian of the high Middle Ages. So we're going to try and remedy that in some small way here with this series of three episodes. And there's no one better to start us off than today's guest, Sister Mary Beth, who is a sister of St. Joseph and presently professor of philosophical theology at the Franciscan School of Theology at the University of San Diego, as well as Professor Emeritus of Philosophy at Loyola Marymount University. Sister received her doctorate from the University of Freiburg in Switzerland. She's written a number of works on Duns Scotus and the Franciscan tradition, including the book we discussed today, Scotus for Dunces, An Introduction to the Subtle Doctor, as well as the aforementioned Understanding John Don Scotus, as well as the related Rejoicing in the Works of the Lord, Beauty in the Franciscan Tradition, all of which, and a few more from Sister Mary Beth, are available from Franciscan Institute Publications at St. Bonaventure University. I've included some links in today's show notes, so please do click through and check out those books from Sister and all the offerings from the wonderful people at St. Bonaventure. In today's episode, we'll get something of an introduction to Dun Scotus and some themes of his writing and thinking. We'll look at his working through the question of the Immaculate Conception, which at his time was a live and debated question. We'll also get a sense of him within the context of, of his Franciscan way of life, with his particular emphasis on the experience of beauty. Here's Sister talking about what brought her to Dun Scotus. Well, what, what drew me to him originally is quite different from what's kept me uh, connected to him. Uh, what drew me to him originally was a uh, dream that my doctoral advisor had when I was doing my doctoral work. So I would not have um, chosen uh, the Franciscan tradition or even SCOTUS on my own. I had done my master's work on Thomas Aquinas. I was very interested in medieval philosophy, which is where my, my degree is in. 
And um, my uh, doctoral advisor said to stop me one day and said, you know, I, I had a dream and I want you to think about Franciscan ethics. And at that point, I imagined it was, well, SCOTUS and Occam and kind of your typical um, stereotype of Occam, certainly, but even SCOTUS by extension, the whole notion of divine command theory and God's will and and how we really, it's all about obedience, it's not about love. And, and I was dramatically surprised as I did more and more work on SCOTUS to discover what an incredibly complex and sophisticated vision of human reality he has and human freedom, not as something dangerous, but rather as what is required for us to respond to God's invitation and the invitation that we've been given by God is the invitation that Jesus talks about in John's gospel at the last supper. I call you friends. I don't call you servants. So even for SCOTUS, the whole uh, description of our human condition and really we could say our human dignity is based upon our capacity to be friends with one another, but uh, importantly to respond to God with a love of friendship, not uh, as servants or slaves. And so it's, it's a liberating vision. And so as, as I worked more and more on SCOTUS, I had the, I, I had the um, experience, confusing experience, I think many people have when they first encounter SCOTUS's thought. I knew something was going on, but I couldn't work out what it was. Mm-hmm. And it was, um, there were some flashes of, this is important, but I don't see how it's important. And, oh, this is kind of important. Now, I wonder how this fits with what I know, having worked in medieval philosophy and having been more familiar with Thomas Aquinas when I started out. Mm-hmm. So um, there's this one anecdote, I'll tell this one anecdote where mm-hmm. thing, I really turned a corner in a lot of ways with SCOTUS. I was struggling to understand his argumentation in a text. And it just did not make sense. And it seemed like he was contradicting himself. And it just seemed like he wasn't going toward more clarity. And I had enough. I was frustrated. So I stopped. And I went out for a walk. And I went walking in our neighborhood. We have a beautiful neighborhood, a lot of trees, a lot of flowers. It was springtime. So the birds were singing. And as I was walking in the neighborhood, all of a sudden, the thought came to me, what if he's trying to describe an experience? And what if he's trying to describe or unpack, we might say, or unfold, an experience that he's had of beauty, hmm. beauty in the world around him, or the, uh, we might call it a spiritual beauty, an experience of God that he's trying to put into words, but of course, it's difficult to put it into words because it transcends language. Well... I went back, looked at the text again, and I'm not kidding. The text opened up before me, and I could see the logic. I understood how he was making one point, then moving to another point, then moving to another point. It all became clear to me. And that was the moment when I realized that if I'm ever going to understand what SCOTUS is talking about, I need to pay attention to my own experiences of beauty, experiences of human kindness, 
my experiences of goodness, my experience of God, my experiences in prayer, all of the things that make up a lived spiritual life. And we know that for the Franciscan tradition, theology is not meant to be a conceptual exercise. It's rather meant to be a process of love. And it's all about learning to love as God loves. And it's all about learning to grasp and embrace the generosity of a God who so loved the world that he chose to become human, not because of our sinfulness or the fall or the, uh, you know, the Felix culpa that we've just celebrated, the fault of Adam and Eve, but because God chose to become one of us anyway, or from the beginning, even before the creation of the world, even before the creation of Adam and Eve. So this was a, a paradigm shift for me suddenly to really pay attention to the fact that Scotus was himself a Franciscan and that the, the inspirations, the admonitions, all of the writings of Francis of Assisi and all the great Franciscan thinkers, Bonaventure, Alexander of Hales, the, the, the great Franciscan writers who preceded him, informed his thinking and his best thinking about what it means to be human, what it means to be a child of God, what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, what it means to be a friend to everyone, whether it's believers and non-believers alike, that enormous inclusive Franciscan vision that reaches out as even as Francis did when he went to encounter the Sultan and came back a transformed man because he realized that the pagan or the non-believer was just as much a believer as he was. So it's been a, um, a remarkable personal transformation for me to spend so much time, but both with Scotus's thinking, but also with Franciscans. Mm -hmm. Because uh, as, you, as you may know, I'm a sister of St. Joseph, mm -hmm. and our tradition is Ignatian. So for, for me to not just think about the Franciscan spiritual um, panorama or the, the map, the Franciscan map, mm -hmm. as it looks at the world, but also to encounter living Franciscans who are um, embodying that inspiration, even some of whom themselves are not that familiar with Scotus's thought, um, they personified it for me. And so I was able to make the connection. I could connect the dots from what they were living to what I was reading. And before I began to pay attention to my experience, uh, or even spiritual experience in general, it seemed disconnected. And I wonder sometimes if that's why some people find SCOTUS so difficult is because they, they approach him as a thinker. You know, here's somebody with a conceptual vision of reality, and they bracket it as distinct from their own lived spiritual experience or their own experience of love, friendship, God's love, God's abundant, um, extravagant love in the world and the beauty around us. So uh, kind of a long answer <laughs> to I bet what you thought was a simple question. It's really all about getting in touch with our own personal journey as a journey to God to then recognize in what Scotus is talking about the foundations for the vision that Franciscans embrace and, uh, and, and to that extent, I find Scotus is quite like Bonaventure 
in the way that he emphasizes beauty. And our key response to beauty is the secret to our human destiny and our human vocation. He expresses it differently than, than Bonaventure does because Bonaventure has a much more platonic um, take on his uh, way of understanding the human journey. And Scotus relies a, a bit more on Aristotle and how Aristotle uses categories to explain things. But I think in the, in the main, what we have in Scotus and Bonaventure are two beautiful uh, trajectories that are both informed uh, with Franciscan spiritual insights. And you go great lengths in, in uh, Scotus Redunces to highlight that you really can't understand Scotus, as you said, without keeping in mind his Franciscan spiritual commitments. Yes. Um, so where would that come into play when looking at how Duns Scotus considers creation and God's free creative act and maybe why why God would have created uh, to begin with, or if, or you, you keep highlighting throughout the the tech your book that um, you know God can't not be God. So, right. given what or who God is, why is creation uh, both a free act, but also an act that makes sense given who God has revealed Himself to be? I guess maybe I'll ask it that way. Yes. Well, I, I think the kind of the the short answer would be the you know the Joe and I line: God is love. Mm-hmm. And by meditating on this notion of love and what is love, it is the generous outpouring of self. So when we look at creation, we look at uh, the giftedness that God, um, that embodies God's identity. You know, we, we think about, Scotus makes the distinction, it's, it's a, I think it's a common theological distinction of, you know, God's life ad intra, which is within the Trinity, the three persons, uh, generously outpouring each one to the other. So even God's inner life is enormous uh, self-generosity and focus on the other. And then ad extra, which is outside of God, is exactly the same. In other words, the way God is inside God's life is the way God is outside God's life. So creation becomes God's gift to us and the way God expresses that dimension or the trinity expresses that dimension of giftedness beyond the divine uh scotus emphasizes as do many um christian theologians god didn't have to create that creation is was not a necessary act on the part of god in fact what scotus and i think what most franciscans want to emphasize is the enormous generosity and free generosity of god's love and so that's where god's freedom becomes so emphasized for Scotus. It's, it's really an analysis of why does God do what God does mm-hmm. as a way of thinking about why do we do what we do? Mm-hmm. And in, in, in some, I think for Scotus, it comes down to because of the way we are created and we are created in the image of God, uh, Imago Dei, but we're also created, Scotus will say, in the image of Christ, Imago Christi. And so that's the pointing toward the incarnation, the tremendous act of God's generosity, not just to hand us a gift in all of its splendor and diversity and beautiful differences in creation, but also to become a gift and to enter into this creative dynamic. So the incarnation for Scotus is the next step in creation. God creates and then God joins. And the purpose of God's creation and God's joining us 
is to offer us the handship of friendship and hoping that our response will be gratitude and uh, friendship. And, and again, freedom is so important because if we think about friendship, I cannot force someone to be my friend. Friendship is that ultimate act of love that has to be freely given. Otherwise, it's not friendship at all. It's um, subservience or it's a debt. We have to thank God because God's done this for us. So it becomes an obligation. And yes, we'll perform our obligations. We'll perform them because we have to. And sometimes we can want to. Mm-hmm. But the key with friendship is there's no obligation involved. It is absolutely a preeminent free gift. And so God, who is preeminently love, is preeminently free. Creation, which is preeminently beautiful and a gift, is preeminently free on the mm-hmm. part of God. And our response through creation to God in friendship and to Jesus Christ in friendship is preeminently free because that's that is God's desire. And so, you know, sort of to come back, what can God not change? What God has decided to do. Mm. God cannot change. And what God has decided to do is, I think, in many ways, take an enormous risk with us mm-hmm. and allow us to be free and, and just work at it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we think about uh, the Hound of Heaven. I don't know how many, <laughs> if you're familiar, how many folks are familiar. It's a beautiful poem by Francis Thompson. Mm-hmm. That uh, that likens God or Jesus to a, a bloodhound that is just continually seeking out, seeking out, seeking out. So nobody's ever left to go astray too far astray, mm-hmm. right. because God, like the Father in the beautiful parable of the prodigal son, which is really I think about the prodigal father, mm-hmm. uh, continues to wait for the son to return and goes out. You know, this good shepherd. We think of all these beautiful parables, the Good Samaritan. Um, the good shepherd who goes out after the sheep that has wandered away and is trying to find its way back. So this is this notion of love, I think, that SCOTUS reflects on throughout that is the ultimate manifestation of divine freedom and goodness. And we are invited to join in that freedom and goodness uh, in response with um, an act of love, generous love toward others, and in particular toward God. So freedom for SCOTUS is not the ability to do whatever you want. It is, in fact, the ability to love with a love of friendship, which is a selfless love. But it requires a kind of radical ability that some people get caught on and thinking, oh, well, he's just he's just one of these dangerous radical types who is undercutting um, the good, the true and the beautiful. And I think that's a. That is a superficial uh, understanding of Scotus based on one or two texts where he does ground this freedom of French for friendship, freedom for mm-hmm. friendship and commitment on a deeper foundation of an absolutely free act of which we are capable. Otherwise, we wouldn't be capable of loving with a love of friendship. Right. And I think you're so right to highlight that when SCOTUS seems to get a bad rap among some types, uh, they might highlight his thoughts on freedom, but as being the way they portray him is as is disconnected from the whole of his work and his Franciscan commitments as well. Right. Uh, Because you highlight um, throughout your book that um, either the will or our, our love is a rational will or a rational willing or rational loving. It's not just arbitrariness and 
justifying it just because it's whatever it is is freely chosen, right? Um, would you say that then our freedom is, is oriented toward the good then? Like it, it, it's there, as you just said, it's there for us to do something with it, right? Right. It, it, and, and SCOTUS talks about our freedom in two ways using categories that he inherited from Anselm of Canterbury, this um, affection, he calls them an aff- affections, but it, it really a better way I think for us to understand this term would be to talk about them as energies because mm-hmm. we would, they're trajectories toward. And so we have an energy or an affection for ourselves, which is holy and wholesome because we are good. We are created with dignity by God who loves us. And we also have this other higher affection, which he calls our free affection. And he also calls it a rational affection or our free energy, our rational energy. And that's this energy for justice. And that's the energy that is directed toward intrinsic goods. So that's this freedom for goodness, this freedom for truth, freedom for integrity, freedom for value. And these two energies or affections that are at work within us are always at work within us every time we make a decision and choose something freely. And Skoda says they have to be there because if we didn't have one or the other, we would not be as free as we are. So the the real work of freedom, moral freedom for Skodas, in my opinion, is this balancing and working out the appropriate relationship in certain situations between uh, being drawn to love the the intrinsic good to the to the not detriment, but uh, be more than we love ourselves, mm-hmm. and that really is. Well, I mean, we can think about the COVID-19 situation today. All of these people who are risking their lives because they are healthcare workers or because they're ordinary people who work in a supermarket or who work delivering mail. I mean, these are people, they're taking appropriate precautions. So that's the kind of the, the energy for the self. But they're also reaching out toward others, serving others. I'm sure we've all heard different um interviews of nurses who say, yes, I'm scared. And yes, this is my vocation. This is what I'm called to do. People need me. And so every day I put myself in, in the way of danger because this is who I am. And it's part of my, um, my personal professional vocation. I think this is a perfect example, Scotus would say, of human freedom mm-hmm. to, to be for others in a, in a way that can require sacrifice of myself. Now, not every decision I make for others is going to sacrifice myself. In fact, when I'm involved in a, in a, a friendship with someone, I'm, I'm benefiting mm-hmm. from it. It's not just all about my friend. I mean, isn't that the difference between a friendship and a codependent relationship, which feels like a friendship, but it's not because the one person is living for the other person. They're not, they're not benefiting or they're not becoming whole, more whole and and healthy themselves. So this this uh, notion of freedom for, which requires a deeper type of freedom, that as you say, many people get caught on this deeper foundational kind of freedom that SCOTUS lays down in order to make possible this other type of richer freedom, which I, I um, do think can only be experienced we have to pay attention to what goes on in ourselves mm-hmm. when we make choices and what am I doing and who am I doing it for? 
to, to leave the discussion of freedom or the understanding of freedom as a merely abstract or conceptual exercise, I think strips it away from its human richness and as you say, its rational richness. Mm-hmm. It makes it just a game. And I think for somebody like Scotus or for any deep spiritual thinker and writer, it, it's a much richer, a much more fruitful human engagement uh, that can be explained with a conceptual framework, but the conceptual framework never replaces the actual choice, the actual decision, the actual experience where I am called upon to think beyond myself. And I choose to do that out of generosity, which is um, the highest, the highest inspiration, I think, that, that we, with which we are equipped. Right. And it's interesting that oftentimes considerations of freedom and then ethical questions, we'll think about justice or goodness or virtue, but you highlight that for SCOTUS, beauty is a moral, ca- a moral category, and it's, it's something more than just maybe um, a secondary consideration of, of human life. Like, I, I think some people treat beauty as being unnecessary in the sense that you don't really need it, right, instead of um, as being central. To right. not just who we are, but who God is. Right. Or, or they see beauty as a matter of taste. Mm-hmm. It's what I like. It's what you don't like. We will agree to disagree. Mm-hmm. And that's a more modern understanding of beauty that I think we've inherited from the 19th century, the whole notion of aesthetics and all of that. Mm-hmm. And I think what SCOTUS is capturing here, as do many great thinkers, Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, Bonaventure, but I think the Franciscan tradition really has a centrality on be- this notion of beauty. It's the classical understanding of beauty that we inherit from ancient civilizations where beauty is more than a concept. Mm. Beauty is, it, it is an experience of the whole. And it's an experience of a whole that is so transformative. We cannot leave the experience the same as we encountered it. And What comes to my mind, you may be very familiar with this in Augustine's Confessions. He talks about this beautiful experience he had with his mother uh, at Ostia where they were watching a sunset. Mm -hmm. And together they said to one another, this is is such a moment. You know, psychologists call this peak experiences where we have, it's almost an out-of-body experience where we are taken up into something much grander, much greater, much fuller than we are ourselves and and we're aware of it right and joy is another is comes along with it so i think that's the experience of beauty that uh scotus holds out bonaventure holds out i think the franciscan tradition in particular holds out to us as a model for living the spiritual life is walking the path of beauty and in that path being transformed by our encounters with the created order with things we find in creation or even with um, the beauty of other people, the beauty of heroic acts, people we admire, the great ideas in mm-hmm. history of uplifting experiences. This I think is what he's trying to evoke for us. And that's what I found when I went back and read that text again to see that behind what he was talking about was this deeper and more profound experience that had so totally transformed him. He was trying to, he was trying to unpack it. Mm -hmm. And in the unpacking, it was all, um, 
it was all mixed up <laughs> because isn't that what these experiences are for us? It takes us a long time to lay them out and go through them and, and really track what they've done for us internally. So I, I just have to say personally, the years that I've spent kind of, I like say hanging out with SCOTUS, <laughs> um, have been so personally transformative for me. And it gets beneath these kind of philosophical debates and theological debates, who's right, who's wrong. It's, it's not about that. It's about, here is, a, here is the portrait of a journey. It is an authentically Catholic journey. Uh, it is a journey that has been embraced by generations and generations of men and women of faith. And it is a journey that some will find um, resonant with their own spirituality. And it doesn't have to be everybody uh, because we're so lucky in the Catholic tradition to have so many different great saints and scholars and great pathways, great ways of taking the journey to God, which is really a journey of both the mind and the heart to God. And SCOTUS offers us one additional Franciscan journey that we can um, benefit from. Right. I was interested that, um, you know, just thinking about, you know, the the diversity within, within the tradition, how, um, I guess maybe a more of a Thomistic or, or Dominican way of, of, um, sort of focusing on our journey toward God will often center on uh, God is truth. Our intellect is enabling us to encounter the truth and the act of knowing as sort of being maybe the pinnacle of our existence. And, um, you know, I find that, that, that sort of Franciscan emphasis on uh, the will and love and the heart and beauty as being more attractive and not that they're necessarily antagonistic, but um, it seems to me that that more Franciscan path, I don't know. I guess I could say at, at most right now that that's definitely more appealing to me. So why do you think that's maybe more, well, that's not the question I want to ask. I was going to ask, you know, why does that seem to be more of a minority position, but that's not a great question, but how do these different accents, I guess, enable us to envision human life differently. I guess that's a better way of putting it. Um, yeah, well, it's, I mean, it's like there are two wings. You know, what, what is it? You can't breathe with only one lung. Well, I suppose you could breathe with one lung, but who would want to? Mm-hmm. Um, the, it, one could argue that these are the two lungs of um, the Catholic tradition. You've got the uh, orientation toward truth uh, that is uh, certainly part of the Dominican uh, antimistic understanding of reality, but but you have to remember that even Aquinas said that in this life, we cannot know God fully. And so, mm-hmm. But what we can do is we can love God fully. Mm-hmm. So in some ways, Thomas was, was a Franciscan here and a Dominican in heaven because mm-hmm. for him in heaven, uh, we will understand God completely. And because we will see God clearly and understand fully, maybe not completely, completely is not such a good, but fully, in mm-hmm. so far as we're able to understand, we will love God um, mm-hmm. fully. But in this life, we, it is better to love God because we cannot understand God. I, I think what, um, what uh, the Franciscan approach, which really is, I think, more an approach of continuity between this life and the next life, mm-hmm. that if here 
in this life, it is better for us to love God, then in the next life, it will also be better for us to love God, even though we will know God more than we do. And yet, when it comes down to it, I think a Franc a Fran the Franciscan spiritual tradition would say, all things being equal, uh, it, it is better to love God um, and, and not to worry about how much we understand God or not to worry how much we know God. You know, for, um, for several centuries after um, the 14th century, after Scotus and, well, 13th century, Scotus and Aquinas were both living, but they were not contemporaries. Mm -hmm. um, fr the Franciscan tradition was the more dominant tradition. So even though today we see it, and we understand it to be a, a, a bit of a minority trajectory. In fact, in history, it was the majority trajectory. As we all know, Aquinas was condemned mm -hmm. in his uh, after he died uh, for some of his Aristotelian positions, and he was rehabilitated and canonized, and and with um, uh, both the Council of Trent, but also uh, in the late nineteenth um, century, uh, Attorney Patris was declared the common doctor of the Catholic Church. Right. So that sort of shot him forward. Um, although, you know, John Paul II's um, Fides et Ratio, Faith and Reason, refused to identify Aquinas as the dominant Catholic theologian. And he tended to kind of spread the, spread the authority out. He identified Anselm. He identified Bonaventure. He identified um, Aquinas, of course. I didn't identify Scotus, but I think Bonaventure would... Mm -hmm. would cover that Franciscan approach. So I, I think it is, it's the recognition that God's greatness and God's goodness is beyond any one conceptual approach. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we even know with Aquinas, he never claimed he had all the answers. In mm -hmm. fact, we know that beautiful story of the end of his life where he was burning much right. of what he had written. And he said, this is all straw. Mm -hmm. So he himself recognized the limitations of his own approach. So I think um, to study Aquinas, and I did study Aquinas for a number of years, is to recognize how tremendously open he is as a right. thinker to other perspectives and to other ways of looking at things. So it is really um, richness of our tradition that we have always had multiple voices, multiple ways of approaching the spiritual path because God is greater than our ability to conceptualize right. the truth about God. Right. It's even interesting with Aquinas, you know, when it comes to the question of the primary motive of, of the incarnation, <clears throat> you know, in the Summa, when he's sort of treating it, he's like, he gives the different perspectives, you know, room to breathe. And then he seems to be ambivalent on it, really. Just scripture right. seems to suggest that. And tradition. Mm -hmm. I mean, Aquinas right. was very much a man who paid attention to tradition before him and really tried to incorporate all the voices, right. which can give um, sometimes the wrong impression that he is perhaps more dogmatic than he really is. He's mm -hmm. quite an open thinker. And, right. um, and I think like SCOTUS willing to entertain lots of different perspectives to see what truths can be found in them. Mm -hmm. So maybe we could, um, you know, as as we come to a close here, uh, maybe focus maybe on what's maybe what Scotus is maybe most known for by those that know him, namely um, the Immaculate Conception, um, which has become obviously much af much many years after his life a uh, um, a dogma. But um, 
what was he what was he arguing for here um or why was he trying to argue so energetically for this special privilege for mary well uh i think the um the question of mary's sinlessness mm -hmm. has an ancient history in the early uh church there was as we know um uh, in the Eastern Church, there was always a special generation, veneration for Mary. And uh, you know, the Theotokos, the God-bearer, mm -hmm. how we talk about Mary as the mother of God, that, that was um, the legacy of uh, Eastern Christianity. And in England as well, in the 10th and 11th centuries in the Saxon realm of, of southern England, there was an enormous devotion to Mary and to her immaculate conception. Now, there was no real technical understanding of what that immaculate conception was because mm -hmm. there was no real understanding as to when the soul, the immortal soul, is infused into the developing um, embryo. Right. So it wasn't they never saw it as the moment of biological conception. They saw it as sometime quite early and before actual physical birth. Mm -hmm. So because of the, um, the devotion, the pastoral devotion of uh, the English or the Saxons, really, when William the Conqueror uh, invaded England, it's probably more than you wanted to know, when William the Conqueror <laughs> invaded England, um, thus the... Um, the feast celebrating Mary was suppressed by the Normans because they didn't think it was a good feast. However, the Saxons continued, <laughs> they continued to celebrate it sort of under the cover of darkness. Uh -huh. um, and in the late 12th century, the Bishop of London said, look, we're going to have to accommodate what the people are doing because this is a meaningful feast for them. So they allowed it to take place. And even Bonaventure himself, as minister general, said, I don't believe it, but let's not condemn anybody or criticize anybody who wants to celebrate Mary's Immaculate Conception. Mm. What, what people tended to want to, theologians tended to want to accept was her, what's called her sanctification in the womb, which is like John the Baptist or Jeremiah. Mm -hmm. Later on in the womb, before she's born, she is cleansed. That was all right. And, and the reason this became kind of the nub of the issue is if Mary herself was sinless, then she would not need to be redeemed. Mm -hmm. And if she would, so she was either not human or she didn't need to be redeemed. And that would infringe upon the capacity of Jesus to be known as the redeemer of all. Right. So now it's about God's universal salvation. So how do you account for the fact that Mary could both be sinless and also redeemed? So here's where Scotus and other Franciscans begin to develop this notion of a kind of prevenient act or prevenient grace on the part of God, a, a type, we might think about it as a type of retroactive protection that Mary's soul receives when it enters the flesh, Mary's immortal soul receives mm -hmm. when it enters the flesh of her developing embryo 
so that we can say she was conceived sexually the way we're all conceived. That makes her human. And she was protected in view of the role she would play in the salvation of all. So it's a retroactive uh, effect of the graces that Christ or that Jesus would win for us through his passion, death, and resurrection are then retroactively extended out of God's generosity to protect Mary. So her soul enters her flesh and is protected from being infected so that she herself could be considered to be conceived without original sin. So she didn't have the stain of original sin, although she did inherit the suffering associated with original sin because she inherited that from her parents in the act of the sexual conception. Uh, And that's illness, death, um, you know, the sort of weakness that we all experience. So she was personally sanctified at, in the womb um, at the moment that her immortal soul uh, joined with the flesh that was developing. She was secondarily sanctified at the moment of the Annunciation when the angel said to her, hail, hail, full of grace. Right. At the moment that the angel greeted Mary, her complete humanity was cleansed. And in that way, her flesh was cleansed, not just her soul being cleansed, but now her flesh has been cleansed so that the, the child in her womb who develops will receive his flesh from her and will receive both her cleansed flesh as well as her human humanity. So Mary becomes, sorry, Mary becomes the ideal human. I mean, she is who we are all called to be. She Mm -hmm. now represents the, the God's desire for us as humans in her free response, which was free to say, behold, be it done to me according to your will. She therefore becomes the epitome of what it means to be a human being as, um, Pope John Paul II articulated in his encyclical on the dignity of women, where he begins with the uh, scene of the Annunciation and says, Mary is in our, she's now our model of this is what it means to be human, the ultimate human dignity. And she also, going back to maybe an earlier consideration, instead of sort of having less of a cause to be thankful to God, right now she has even more, of, of a reason to express her gratitude, which she does, you know, so wonderfully in the Magnificat. And, um, yes. yes. In fact, Scotus says, you know, if forgiving Mary Magdalene's sin is a great work of God, then preventing someone from sinning is an even greater work mm-hmm. of God. And that's this notion of prevenient grace, right. the grace that strengthens us. So we don't sin the grace that holds us in God's love so, and we have reason to be even more grateful mm-hmm. because um, it's to talk about something we didn't deserve. Mm-hmm. We didn't right. deserve it. It's also, as you're re- recounting, you know, the, the, the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception also reminded me of how concerned uh, 12th, 13th, 14th century theologians were with embryology. Yes. <laughs> you know, yes. It's, it's really fascinating. And uh, when, when the soul, when is the immortal soul? Mm-hmm. as opposed to just the living, the life form. When does that 
uh, take um, root. And there right. were many different um, right. theories. Right. Yeah. That's a interesting episode, certainly. Yes. Um, so uh, I guess, is there anything uh, we should touch on before closing out? Oh, is my. there anything that should be said about SCOTUS that wasn't so far? Well, I think one thing um, we can, I can say mm-hmm. about SCOTUS uh, is he, for me, epitomizes um, the best of the Franciscan spiritual tradition, the best of an inclusive, generous love of God that sees all reality as connected and this notion of a kinship ethic that mm-hmm. we're called not just to serve but to protect and care for one another. He has uh, the tr- enormous Franciscan optimism mm-hmm. about what does it mean to be human and how we are in fact called to be Christ-like in the world in response to a God who has loved us beyond anything we could have hoped or imagined. And and you highlight multiple times throughout your book, how optimistic and positive he is in his anthropology and understanding of humanity. And um, it does seem like he always errs on the side of generosity, right? Even with the immaculate conception, right? If God could do it and it's fitting, why wouldn't he do the thing that's best, right? Or highest. And and so he seems to spread that around, doesn't he? Yeah, no, he's got that great line. Look, we're going to be wrong no matter what we do. So let's err on the side of generosity and um, give people more credit even than they deserve. Mm-hmm. That's better than being stingy. And that's very Franciscan. Right. And you even highlight when you're talking about, um, you know, God's response to our loving acts, right? And in, in rewarding human Beyond, goodness. Right? Yeah, God will reward us beyond what we deserve and God will punish us less than we deserve. Right. So that's a very consoling thought. It's a very encouraging and very, um, I don't want to say heartwarming because that's a little too saccharine, but it definitely, um, it it buoys, I think, one up when you encounter the Franciscan uh, tradition. Well, and it explains to me why Franciscans are so kind and so patient with every situation. I, I am always, I always marvel. I probably shouldn't, I should be used to it now, but it just, it just, it takes my breath away to, to witness the kindness. And I think in some ways, even though he's a Jesuit, we're witnessing this in the behavior of Pope Francis, who has such compassion for the world and for whom the Franciscan message has taken such deep root in his mind and his heart that he's a living witness, I think, uh, for the tradition. Thanks to Sister Mary Beth Ingham for her time and insight into the life and work of Don Scotus. I very much enjoyed speaking with Sister and highly recommend and encourage you to seek out her works, which again, you can do by way of the links included in the show notes for this present episode. If you like what you heard in this or any other of our episodes, please be sure to subscribe, review, share with others, because sharing is good, very Franciscan. In our second installment focused on Duns Scotus, we will consider the highly interesting, very controversial set of concerns centered around this question. Why did God become incarnate in the person of Jesus? We'll just leave it at that. It's a lot to go, lot to, lot to go uh, along with that question and, and where it leads our minds and hearts. And we'll see in, in the next episode that the contribution of Duns Scotus was and remains particularly rich and relevant 
And this question is a fun one to debate at theologically minded parties, which, of course, just sounds like a, a great time. Until then, though, let's continue journeying further up and further in. <laughs> <laughs>